This is David Suisa. Welcome to my podcast. Today, I have my friend Howard Kaplan, who I first met at my Shabbat table. I call him the accidental James Bond. He regaled us with stories, fascinating stories of his days living the intrigue of the Middle East. And in fact, his movie is coming out uh, on July 20th in Los Angeles and July 27th nationally. It's called Damascus Cover. The LA Times calls him, says, Kaplan is up there with the best. Howard Kaplan, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you were saying these amazing stories at our Shabbat table, and I think I drank too much wine because I don't remember uh, too many of them. But uh, some of the stories you told us connected directly to this book that is now being been made into a film, and that's coming out, the Damascus cover. So give us a, a, a little synopsis. I know that you started off with Soviet Jewry movement in the early 70s. You're an L.A. boy from Hamilton High. And then tell us a little bit about your journey before we get into the whole James Bond stuff. Uh, well, I, on a dare, I went and did my junior year at the Hebrew University. I met Arthur Hertzberg at the Brandeis Institute. Somebody told him I was a troublemaker. He came right up to me and Were said... Were you a troublemaker? A little bit. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't innocent. And he said, take a walk. We took a walk. At the end of it, he said, I'm going to Jerusalem next week. Come with me. And I went. So I did my junior year abroad. This is junior year of college? Of college. It was okay. My, I was at Berkeley and then my third year at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And I had a very close friend from New York who said, let's not study for finals. Let's go to the Arab countries. Let's really get an education. Let's see what's happening here. So we flew to Cyprus. We had passports with Israel stamps all over. We went to the American embassy, and they said, we'll give you a new passport, but you can't keep two passports with you because we don't want you selling them or losing them. So we'll keep your Israel passport in the safe, go to the Arab countries, come back, and we'll give you, we'll swap the passports back. And you were allowed to go to Arab countries like Syria? They, we flew to Beirut. Okay. And no visas, just landed in the airport in Beirut. There was no trouble. We heard on Cyprus that there was an American studying at the American University of Beirut from Correct. Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. We knocked on his door Friday night. He was gone for the weekend, but with great hospitality. His Syrian roommate invited us to stay for the weekend. During this weekend, he told us you could take a shared taxi from Beirut to Damascus. It's less than three hours, and they'll give you a visa at the border. That's amazing. I don't think we realize that it's three-hour drive. Right, how short Beirut these distances are. To Damascus, two right. cities that you know are from ancient times. Right, and actually... It terms comes out both in my novel and in the film. The director, the screenwriter, liked it. Damascus is the oldest continuously inhabited city on the planet because of the caravan routes. Mm. So they mentioned this in the book. I mentioned it in the book, and then they mentioned it in the film. But, but it's unthinkable that today an American would be able to do that. All these things but, seem sort of impossible. This was before the Civil War in, in Lebanon? No, I don't, probably you couldn't even go into Lebanon that way without... Right. And in those days, was that the, the, the heyday of Beirut when they called it yes, the Paris it of the Middle the East? Yes, before the Civil War. We met a Canadian uh, military officer on the plane, and he said to us, I can lead you to the clean girls and the gold. 
Okay. We actually turned him down, but... Good move. It was those years before the Civil War, and they said that Beirut was the Paris of the Middle East, and it was. It was really... I have a picture of this outdoor clock made all of flowers. It's like being in Geneva. You know, it's it's so hard for us to imagine uh, those kind of images when you see the chaos and the disasters that we, and, and the we violence just, and the we destruction. We went right on the, in the, you know, the, like what the Israelis would call a Sheirut, a shared taxi, at the border, and I still have it. What time home. was it? We got a whole was page it nighttime? of stamps. Was it nighttime? No. They, Left in the morning, got there in the, So you know, within three hours, you're now in Damascus. In Tell Damascus. us, what does Damascus look like? Damascus is fabulous, actually. I'm very partial to Damascus and very sad at the destruction And one of the things, my novel was originally published long before the Civil War. So one of the things people have written about is that it stands as an artifact to what Damascus was like. Damascus is an oasis in the desert. That's why it's the oldest city on the planet. Rivers come up from Lebanon underground, and Damascus has fabulous fruit trees. Apricots, walnuts, peaches, everything used to have rung the city, and then they have, like in many places, there's a mountain, and the elite live up in the mountain, and the lesser people live in the flatlands. Right, and one of the mountains being the Golan Heights, which is now part of Israel. Right. So we went to the Jewish quarter of Damascus, and we stood right outside the Jewish quarter, and my friend says to me, we've prior to that been to the great Omayyad Mosque, where there actually had been a plot at one point to kill Henry Kissinger, and we're about to try to get into the Jewish quarter. My friend says, see that guy across the street? He was at the mosque, too. He's following us. Someone was following Someone you. Was following. Now, before we get into that James Bond part, just the Jewish quarter, give us a general estimate of how many Jews you think there were there. There were, in its heyday, 1948, before the War of Independence, 75,000 Jews in Syria. At the time I went in the early 70s, there were 5,000. They were mostly held as hostages. And part of the plot of the novel, the Damascus cover, was that the Israelis are sending in a sort of aging agent to smuggle out a group of Jewish children from the Jewish quarter. He has another mission he doesn't know about, but that was the impetus. from my side, I wanted to alert the world about the Jews of Syria. Right, and, and you can already see that they were being oppressed, correct? Yes. This is the early 70s. Now, when you talk to the Jews there, did they express that oppression? We didn't actually speak to them mm-hmm. because we were afraid that we left the country. You were afraid that what? When we, were fo- when we saw that we were followed outside mm-hmm. the Jewish quarter, we didn't go inside. Oh, I see. I see. So you were never in contact with any Jews no, there. No, but there were Jews living in New York, in Brooklyn. Grand deal. Who had gotten out earlier. Right. So I talked to them to write the novel. But inside Syria, and the thing that's so peculiar, you, you would see your life being relived. In the film, they have Jonathan Rhys Myers as the star and Jurgen Prochnow, who's a great German actor from Dust Boat, playing a former Nazi living in Damascus. And they walk by the outside of the Jewish quarter. And it was like my life being relived all these years later in the film, well, that they're walking by the Jewish quarter. All right, so how did you know you were being followed? 
I think it was mostly that my I didn't see it. My friend felt that since the same man had been near us in the mosque, cross town, and here in the Jewish quarter, there was nobody. The Jewish quarter is on the eastern edge of Damascus, closest to the desert, you know, the least fertile and nice area. It was impossible. How could he be both there and in the Omayyad mosque? So he had to have been following us from the mosque. And we went right back to Marja Square, the Great Square, where actually the Israeli spy Eli Cohen had been hung in 1965. Right. And, and how long did you stay in Damascus? Though? We were in Damascus not even overnight. Okay. Because we were scared. We just sort of went right back to Beirut. Gotcha. And what was the impetus for, for your novel? I think the two parts that I just mentioned. One was the Jewish quarter. I wanted to write about it. And the other was that Ellie Cohen had risen so high up in the Syrian apparatus that even though he was caught and hung in 65, two years later during the Six-Day War, his intelligence proved crucial in their taking the Israel taking the Golan Heights. Mm. So I started to create a story about an Israeli spy, a different one, who rose high up in Syrian intelligence. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to weave in the Jewish quarter, and both you'll see in the book and in the film, one of the ways I chose to do it is I made the resident Nazi living in Damascus, played by Prochnow, to have a Jewish housekeeper from the Jewish ghetto. Mm -hmm. So in a way, you're sort of this was your, your personal revenge because you saw something that did not please you. I, I certainly felt that I wanted to try to alert a larger audience towards the plight of Jews in Syria. And I thought a thriller, a spy novel, would be a good sort of mass market way to do it. And it turns out, like so many Arab countries, the, um, they ended up leaving. How many Jews are there now? Five? None. Two? The Israelis... I think about two years ago, smuggled out the last group from Aleppo. But interestingly, and I only learned this much later, it shows you what a Jewish community can do. The Jewish community of Toronto. Correct. There's a woman in Toronto. Right. That was her. Was very yeah. adamant that this was going to be her cause. Right. And she got to know other Syrian Jews, and she ransomed them. One by one, they raised money, and they went in there, and they just bought them out quietly. Nobody knew about it until it was all over. And I think it went on for 10 or 20 years. With the authorities. They basically Yes, the authorities agreed to it. You know, they, I guess probably the deal was they agreed to it as long as it wasn't public. Right. They never admitted. Did you ever meet her? No. I've read Mm -hmm. about her. She's in Canada. Right. Right. Me too. I mean, I've been reading about her for years. And she's not even Sephardic. I think she's an Ashkenazi Jew who took on this cause. Sometimes people grab onto a cause. And they can create great things. So this book, uh, when, when it first came out, what was the, the reaction? So it did very well when it first came out. It was on the Los Angeles Times bestseller list for about three months. The reviews were very good. Uh, and my, my publisher, which was Dutton at the time, said, you've done better than 90% of first novels. I got a big paperback sale. It was translated into seven languages. And it was, maybe it's a funny story or cute, 
It was sold to a publisher then in Yugoslavia, which the country still existed under the communists. And they had to submit it to the Central Committee for authorization to translate. Not only did they not let them translate it, they confiscated all copies of the book and put it on the Eastern European Soviet blacklist simply because it had to do with Israel. It had, there was nothing in it that right. was sensitive. When, when you wrote uh, the book, did you have a, a secret desire to be that guy, to be that spy? Is this sort well, of I did it a little bit differently. Pleasure? I don't know. I started writing the book in my 20s, and I felt a little bit worn out at that point, and I thought, well, if I try to write a novel about a worn-out 24-year-old, everybody's going to laugh at me. You know, I'm going to get no sympathy anywhere. Yeah, way too young for that. Right. So I imagined what a 50-something person would feel worn out. And he seemed very old to me then, although I'm older than the character is You had now. to manufacture a little cynicism. I think I was able to transmute it. And I taught writing at UCLA for a while. And I used to teach people, rather than try to write fiction as autobiography, transmute it. Find something in your life that you can grab on and then change it somehow so it can become alive in a character. Right, right. So when you saw the, the movie for the first time, did, did you think it did justice to your book? The movie's different than the book, which in a way is a very good thing. Uh, it follows the book closely. The director often says he wrote the screenplay. He says, when I was up against the wall, I always returned to the spine and the muscle of the book. That's, those were his words. Then when we started to get people like Jonathan Reese Myers and John Hurt to play in this small $5 million film, it was staggering. I remember telling my son, who's now 25, I said, we have Jonathan Reese Myers. He said, you have a 25-year-old son? Huh? You have a 25-year-old son? I have a 25-year-old son. son Is he single? Because I have yes, a lot of single. daughters. Okay, great. We'll talk we'll after talk the show. We'll talk later. Uh, he said, are you sure you have Jonathan Reese Myers? Are you sure? And I said, he read the script overnight and decided he wanted to do it, and they did it. Nice. Wow. Um, so when you look now at the Middle East... Uh, compared to when you were first exposed to the Middle East in the early 70s and the whole romance of, you know, Beirut and Damascus. I mean, what do you make of all this destruction and this horror and this just Everything's com worse complex chaos? everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I think I used to write, I think I did, I wrote and I still write now. I have a new novel just out. What's it called? The Spies Gamble. It's been out only a couple of weeks. It's about Israelis and Palestinians. And I've been, I feel sometimes when I'm doing something right, I get positive reviews by Israeli press and positive reviews by the Arab press because I'm looking to show what people feel like as human beings. And by and large, I find most people want peace. It's the political structures that prevent uh, Do you consider yourself a centrist? Yes, I would say I'm a centrist, but I like to explore. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll go equally into settlements and refugee camps. Mm -hmm. And You sound like me. You know, I want to see what... I don't want someone to tell me what it's like in a refugee camp. Uh, I was there. Yeah. I want to go. I want to... The best hummus I've ever had <laughs> in a Ramallah really, refugee camp. You know, generous. What I was have, interesting, though, is when I went, I asked my the guy I was with, I said, um, 
you know, tell me what it was like. And this was, I don't know, eight to 10 years ago. And what he said to me is that before the Oslo Agreement, thousands of Israelis would come up to Ramallah. Yes. And it would be really good there for their business. And then since Oslo, it shrunk to no one now. No I Israelis. I've been, Guatemala, it's bad for business. I've been going to Israel and into the Palestinian villages for 40 years. And things have gradually and consistently deteriorated. Up near north of Tel Aviv, they used to shop in Tul Karm. Right. Which is on the way west where that very narrow part of Israel is. You know, inside, uh, it's an Arab town. Now, nobody anymore. People and are I afraid. asked him, you know, because I, I, I love the hummus that I had there. And I asked uh, the guy to ask the merchant who, saw, who made the hummus for us. And he made it by hand. I mean, it's all sort of, uh, you know, hardcore, authentic. And I asked him, I, I said, ask him if he would like to see the Jews come back again for business. And he asked him. And I had taken my yarmulke off. But he said no. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm surprised to hear He that. said no. I mean, I can almost feel the... That's a real hardening of position. Yeah. Usually the average guy wants business. You the, know, it's more the BMW dealer in Ramallah was absolutely what wanted peace because <laughs> it was good for business. <laughs> it was really good for business. Yeah. So, so you've seen both sides. I was in Egypt in that same time I was in Syria before peace with Israel when the Russians were there. And all the Egyptians told me they wanted the Russians gone and the Americans to come back because the Americans shopped. Mm. And the Russians didn't have any money. But what about the Jews? My God, you're talking about, you know, centuries and centuries of Jewish history in all these countries right. that is now gone. The Jews right. I actually Egypt. did my undergraduate thesis at Berkeley on Jews in Arab countries. And almost all those communities and I've mentioned to you at your home, we shot the film in Casablanca, mm. and which is your hometown, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. So we needed a scene. It didn't make it into the film. It got cut, but we needed a scene that was supposed to be in the Jewish cemetery in Tel Aviv. So we went to the Casablanca Jewish cemetery, and all the headstones have Hebrew on them. And they just shot there as if it was Tel Aviv. Yeah, you know, it, the Morocco is an outlier. Uh, it was a different experience. It was, it was not, definitely not as bad as the other countries for the Jews. When you look at uh, Syria and, you know, Lebanon and Egypt and, and Iraq and stuff. However, you know, we had our challenges. But we had, we were blessed to have a king who felt very protective of the Jewish community. But even there, the population has gone from 300-some thousand to about 3,000 now. So it, they have obliterated a whole culture called the Jews of Arab countries. I don't know what happened exactly, but the biggest distributor of film in the Arab country bought the Damascus cover, bought the film early on at the Berlin Film Festival. They're called Gulf Films. And only now, a few months ago, that the film was ready and about to be distributed, they say we have to cancel the deal. The censors won't let us show a film about Israel. You know, I think a country loses part of its soul if it doesn't have a minority of strangers. And, you know, right now... They, I think it's an interesting notion. The cleansing of all the Jews out of Arab countries has been a big loss for those countries. When, whenever we talk about a two-state solution, um, I always, often say, why not have Jews in a future state of Palestine? It would be to the advantage of the state itself. 
you know, a, a minority keeps you honest. A minority keeps you more democratic because you have to care for the minority. Uh, so in the same way that uh, there's an Arab minority in Israel. I think it's crucial. I think that that is a pathway to a possible future. Mm-hmm. And, and, and all those minorities have been obliterated. You know, like I know that in Morocco, there's a real regret of losing the Jews. Okay. I know because there's a, a friend of mine who lives there and there are these movements among Arabs that want to know more about the culture of the Jews. There, there's a sense of nostalgia for the Jewish presence in Morocco. And you can't get that back. It's sort of, it's gone. And I think we're starting to realize that the sense of loss in the Arab world. Yeah, it's too bad. That's now everything has to be separated. You know, people right. can't live together. Right. And did, tell us about your new book. So The Spies Gambles is set in current times. And it was really the product of my spending time in Palestinian areas and is all over Israel also. And it's about an Israeli, it's, it's about an Israeli prime minister who comes to the U.S. to do a publicity ride on a submarine, a stealth submarine that Israel has bought from America. This is fictional. There isn't a stealth submarine yet of that ilk. And he goes out on an exploratory ride, and the submarine disappears. And so it's a chase. With the prime minister. With the prime minister on board. That's a good And we want to see, are the Palestinians behind it? Are the Arabs behind it? Are the Russians behind it? Do they want the stealth technology? And nobody knows. I got to tell you, Howard, you have gone completely Hollywood Uh, because that is a great premise for a film. Right. So. Das Boot, Crimson Tide. Right. Yeah, those. uh, So the book's new. It's only been out a few weeks. Okay. And so far, the initial response is good. But, you know, you never know what's going to happen a little farther down the line. Well, it, you know, it's interesting because there's it, – it's like we don't need fiction in today's world because the nonfiction is a type of fiction. But I do think, we, you know, there's not enough of it. Uh, well, or, I think the fiction at least is a rest from the nonfiction. Right. You know, right. I think we're all exhausted from we're the exhausted. nonfiction exhausted right Exhausted is the, uh, is the right word. Uh, anyhow, this is a quick podcast to uh, speak about your new film and your new book. So I just want to remind all our listeners that uh, there's the L.A. premiere this coming Thursday, July 12th at the Museum of Tolerance, and then the official premiere in L.A. is July 20th at all the Lamely Theaters, my favorite theater chain in L.A., especially the one in Santa Monica. I've been going there for 35 years, and I love the new renovated theater, and it'll be all across the Lamely Theater starting July 20th, across the country on July 27th. Correct. It's called The Domestic Cover. Please go see it. Howard Kaplan, I'll see you very soon at our Shabbat table. Thank you very much for all of it. Take care.